Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Just a quick heads up. This podcast contains rude language and adult themes. The philosophy of sex. Before we start, this episode contains conversations about sexual abuse, which may be triggering. There are resources in the show notes if you need support. If I don't have to be in pain when having sex, if I can actually enjoy it again, if I can feel free from it, then I will do everything in my power to do that because I don't want to feel like this forever being 27 and finally kind of understanding my sexuality I wish that I had started this journey a lot earlier. The drug industry wasn't just only involved with developing drugs they'd also gotten into the disease creation or expansion industry. And it leaves people being gaslighted so they they don't understand what's happening to them but it's it's their fault or they're led to believe that it's their fault when it's not at all. Welcome to The Philosophy of Sex. I'm your host, Caroline Moreau-Hammond. In today's episode, we're looking at female pleasure. A study conducted in 2020 by the Women's Health Research Program at Monash University in Melbourne is the largest study of Australian women's sexuality to date, reporting an overall picture of the sexual well-being of Australian women between ages 18 to 39. Results showed 50% of young Australian women experienced some form of sexually related personal distress. This could mean feeling guilty, embarrassed, stressed or unhappy about their sex lives. The same research found one in five women in Australia have one sexual dysfunction. The most common FSD was low sexual self-image, which caused distress for 11% of study participants. Arousal, desire, orgasm and responsiveness were also cited as reasons for dysfunction. Sexual self-image dysfunction was associated with being overweight, obese, living with a partner, being married, not being married, breastfeeding and being a mother. And this really got me thinking. These dysfunctions seem a lot less like diseases or medical conditions and more like facts of life that may or may not be prohibitive to a woman's pleasure. Understandings of female sexuality are certainly changing, but it's still a really under-resourced area in research and science. And studies that do get supported are often funded by pharmaceutical companies with pretty heavily vested interests in creating medications for these so-called dysfunctions. But more on that later. Dysfunction or no dysfunction, the consistent point that crops up time and time again sex could be significantly more satisfying for women than it currently is. We know young women are more likely than men to use their partner's pleasure as a measure of their own satisfaction, whereas young men are more likely to measure their own satisfaction by their orgasm. Women also define bad sex differently. In one of the largest studies conducted on sexual behaviour, women reported pain in their sexual encounters 30% of the time. 
Women were more likely to use words like depressing, humiliating and degrading when describing their sexual experiences. Young men seldom used words like this. Yet in some research, women report higher rates of sexual satisfaction. Why? Well, if a woman enters a sexual encounter hoping it won't hurt, expecting to feel close to her partner or partners, and wanting them to have an orgasm, she'll be satisfied if those criteria are met. And while there's nothing wrong with any of these things, don't you think that's a fairly low bar for your own sexual fulfillment? We've taught women to have a voice and demand egalitarian treatment in all areas of their lives, yet this doesn't seem to have extended to sex. Today we'll be interrogating how we got here. We'll talk about the term female sexual dysfunction, the race to medicalise the orgasm, and we'll raise some ethical questions about the pharmaceutical industry. We'll also talk to a sexologist who explains the non-pathological approach to understanding our individual sexuality and sexual pleasure and hear the stories of two people who interrogated, identified, and took the steps to move past the things that were preventing them from enjoying sex. Let's go back to the early 2000s, when drug companies locked on to the next big idea. My name is Liz Kanner, and I'm a documentary filmmaker. A friend of mine asked me if I would like to help her put together erotic videos that would be used in a clinical trial to test a new orgasm cream for women. And I thought, oh, this is a perfect way to get an inside look at what science and medicine is saying about women and sexuality in this particular historical moment. At the time that Liz started filming Orgasm Inc., she was hired by a pharmaceutical company, Vivas, to edit erotic videos for the trial of a new pleasure cream for women. There, she was exposed to the race to bring the first female Viagra to market. Uh, Viagra was an incredibly well-selling drug for men. It's an extremely expensive drug. The thought was, well, there's got to be just as big a market for women. And basically, the term female sexual dysfunction was created. So female sexual dysfunction is this very broad term that basically encompasses any sexual dissatisfaction that a woman may have and puts it within this medical lens as if there's something functionally wrong with the women that have this, which is not accurate for most women who are sexually dissatisfied. Things started moving really fast and the industry exploded. Female Viagra wasn't aiming to cure pain or find the answers to what causes things like vulvodynia, for example. It was very much targeted at increasing arousal and difficulty achieving orgasm. However, it didn't account for the factors that really impacted those things. There was very little knowledge about female sexuality, and to make anything sound plausible meant simply moving the goalposts. So in other words, when it was thought that testosterone was the reason women had low desire, all of a sudden women were being told they had low testosterone levels. It had to do with our serotonin levels, our dopamine levels. So it really was corresponding, I think, in terms of how these definitions were being used to what drug was being developed. I shot the film over many years, but it became clear to me that the drug industry wasn't just only involved with developing drugs. They'd also gotten into the disease creation or expansion industry. 
There has been a massive allocation of time and resources by the pharmaceutical industry to develop drugs for increasing female sexual pleasure. Is that inherently a bad thing? Well, not necessarily, but there is a need for more questions around the ethics of the pharmaceutical approach and its effectiveness. Sex and sexuality involves a complex interplay of emotions, experiences, beliefs and lifestyle. And while certain pharmaceuticals can be appropriately prescribed to assist in some cases, again like vulvodynia, infections and persistent pain, as an alternative to the pharmaceutical approach are sex therapists who are informed by a completely different philosophical framework. I'm Cassandra Marikis and I'm a sexologist. Cassandra, who insisted we call her Cass, is a member of the Society of Australian Sexologists. She has an undergrad in psychology and a master's in sexology. To me, pleasure is anything and everything that feels good or brings satisfaction. It's the non-sexual and the sexual. It can be so central to well-being and that it's a protective or a supportive factor against oppression or trauma. And pleasure can be difficult or dangerous for certain groups because of systemic oppression. And and I support people to actually recognize this and understand how the world gets in the way of their relationship to themselves, their pleasure, their sexuality, but how pleasure can be a pathway through that. Her approach holds space for the many variables that make up a person's sexual response and encourages gaining a deeper understanding of ourselves and checking the narratives we've picked up in our lives. It leaves people being gaslighted so they, they don't understand what's happening to them, but it's it's their fault, or they're led to believe that it's their fault when it's not at all. It can leave people feeling as if they're broken, which they're not. As we examine the ethics of the pathological or non-pathological approach to sexuality in this episode, we'll hear from Liz and Cass about how these approaches differ. We'll also hear from two very brave women who have undergone these journeys themselves. When it comes to female and transgendered bodies especially, there are forces that have an interest in giving and withholding certain information. Philosophy is no exception, the foundations of which were built from the male perspective and whose ideas continue to shape our thinking today. So let me introduce Laura Eustace. Laura is a really good friend of mine from New Zealand that I have known since I was 15 and met when we were trekking in Nepal. Laura's worked through the process of facing her traumas, being incredibly vulnerable and trusting her support networks in the process of finding help for her sexual well-being. I was born and raised in Auckland, New Zealand, and from a young age, I encountered sexual abuse. So when I was nine, I was sexually abused by my swimming instructor And then when I was 17, I was raped at a party numerous times. For a long time, I felt very ashamed and scared to talk up about my sexual abuse, partly because of, you know, the negative connotations that go on in society of like, oh, well, she must be making it up or, oh, well, what were you wearing that night? Like that was always in the back of my mind where I was almost too scared to speak up about these kind of things because I was scared of being told or invalidated that my experience was all up in my head. And for a long time, because of the fact that I'd had these mental illnesses and because 
I was so depressed and stuff like that. I didn't even trust my own mind. Laura's story is truly heartbreaking. And what's more heartbreaking is that she's not an outlier. For just a moment, think of six of your female friends. The personal safety study in Australia found that one in six women have experienced at least one sexual assault since the age of 15. Approximately one in two women had experienced sexual harassment by a male or female perpetrator during their lifetime. For men, it's one in four. A World Health Organization multi-country study found that rates of child sexual abuse in New Zealand were between one in four women. This was higher than any other of the 10 countries in the study. It's also a strong personal belief that these numbers are likely to be vastly underrepresented for a range of reasons, including lack of formal reporting, difficulty accessing the support needed to come forward, shame, and narrow understandings of what constitutes sexual abuse. But as Laura matured, she felt more and more trapped with her experiences and couldn't speak up. It's scary how common this feeling is because learning about what sex means to us is mostly done alone. And that's how it happened for 27-year-old Melbourne-based musician Francesca Gonzalez. I feel like my family wasn't very open to talking about that kind of stuff. So I feel like I very much had to learn about sex on my own that I think is quite sad to come to terms with and frustrating. I kind of started to feel really lost sexually and just understood that I really like to have sex within an intimate relationship and an intimate context. And just, you know, had a few one night stands that weren't really that great. And just kind of started to, to walk away from sex and just kind of go, oh, that's not for me. Because every time I partook in that realm I just had a really shitty experience so I was just kind of having these like almost like desperate strange weird experiences with sex for so long that were really awful and I'd wake up the next morning just feeling so gross because more just just I wasn't in control and I think now being 27 and finally kind of understanding my sexuality I wish that I had started this journey a lot earlier What Fran is pointing to here is an all-too-common experience for women. Often when we're learning about our sexuality, it's not just that we're learning from scratch, it's that we're really starting off on a back foot. There's a lot of fighting through myths and misconceptions and taboos to be worked through before you can feel as though you're genuinely entitled to pleasure. And therefore, this leads to a lot of tolerance of pain, discomfort, and poor behavior on the part of lovers. I think it was at the end of 2019 that I really started to realize, like, okay, something's not right. Uh, Libido went down. I was constantly having bladder problems. So, like, I'd go to pee and it would only be, like, a couple of drops, but it would feel like I was busting. The best way I can describe it is like I just started to avoid it. It was my way of coping. I just, if I didn't think about it, it didn't exist. And it got to the point where I was just avoiding sex and just doing whatever I could to just not, you know, have to go through the actual act of um, penetration sex. And for me, it was always really painful if I did have that. And it was just like, okay, 
I really don't want to and it would almost become like a big fear of mine and I think I'd ignored it for about a year and then I was like, okay, fuck it, I'm sick of it, I'm gonna do it. It was probably 18 months ago that I realised like, hang on a minute, as soon as I realised that I was people pleasing and that I wasn't being assertive, this is actually stopping me from having relationships with beautiful people and that I have a block. And that's when I decided to look into sex therapy. The philosophy of sex is brought to you by Becoming. Becoming offers something quite different from your typical online sex store. We combat the frustration of trying to find a great sex toy by producing personalised recommendations. Kind of like a sex toy concierge or HelloFresh with dildos. We only stock the best of the best, so whether you're starting out or adding to your collection, take our quiz, tell us what gets you off, what you're curious about trying, and we'll deliver a personalised selection of toys to your door. Pleasure is for everyone, so visit becoming.me. Becoming spelt B-E-C-U-M-I-N-G. Back to the episode. Sexology is the the study of human sexuality and it's through meaning and behaviour and often it's through a social or cultural lens and that might be finding it hard to feel pleasure in their body because they're disconnected from their body or feeling really intense shame and then, you know, a whole other group of people who want to explore or, or even reclaim intimacy and pleasure after trauma or while they're living with a chronic illness or as a disabled person or a person in a body that isn't accepted in society. Confronting trauma and shame is really hard work. Even acknowledging that you haven't necessarily been getting what you might want or expect or what feels good for a long time is extremely confronting. But this approach is integral to what CAS does in a trauma-informed and anti-oppressive way. They're learning about themselves in a way that is sort of very different from what the world has taught them and they're understanding themselves more and it makes a lot more sense to them that it's not their fault. If you're dealing with discrimination every day, if you're dealing with a workplace that wants you to work like extremely long hours that you've got nothing left, if you're going home and you have to do your second job as a parent while your partner doesn't do anything, when you're dealing with so much, you either don't have time to have sex, you don't want to have sex, you don't enjoy it, it's really hard to feel pleasure, all of these things. Acknowledging these situations takes self-awareness and making any changes takes a lot of courage. After years of believing that pleasurable sex was off the cards for Laura and Fran, something shifted. There was a tipping point which brought with it a willingness to change the experiences they were having. And being the strong, self-aware people that I know they both are, they decided to take action. I shouldn't be feeling like this. I didn't do anything to cause it. This is just a thing that has come up from years of storing up this trauma within the body, and now I need to do something to help fix it. The decision to face these issues is hard enough on its own, 
But even outside of this hard decision, there's so many other factors that could pose a barrier. People are so socialised to, to endure or tolerate sexual discomfort that they might not reach out for a long time because they've been taught that this is the way it just has to be or that it's as good as it gets or nothing will ever change. They might really minimise their experiences. But there's also such a huge amount of shame or fear or anxiety in talking about sex. So that's a, quite a significant thing to, to shift through. And the thing about therapy and support it's the connection and the relationship that you have that is most important in, in the outcomes that you experience. Sessions might involve a multitude of different methods. However, the most common and usually the first step is what is called talk therapy. I think the thing that really blew my mind was how much sex comes into every single aspect of your life. And I've had a great counsellor for six or seven years, but she would coach me more on my music and career and, and I would try and bring up the fact with her that I was struggling with intimate relationships. But I think what was really cool was going to sex therapy with this very specific thing I wanted to talk about and I had kind of realised that it was a problem. Really going into that exact thing, I started to realise that like, I am an incredibly passive person. So people would tell me what they wanted and I wouldn't tell them what I needed. And my journey through my own mental health just like, I guess, really exploded. As in all of the therapy I'd had before was just pretty like, yeah, I could kind of work through this myself. But with sex therapy, it was like I was having like epiphanies, like every five minutes, every 10 minutes and everything that I was doing in my life, I could bring back to this learning. And it's like semi changed my life. <laughs> For Laura, because her body was holding on to the trauma of her abuse in a much more physical way, a slightly different approach had to be taken. I went to my gynaecologist and afterwards when talking about all the symptoms and whatnot, she said, I believe that you've got an overactive pelvic floor and also vaginismus, which is stinging, you're having pain during sex um, and it's because of the fear and your body is constantly contracting and making it too tight for there to be any type of entry in there, whether it's from a tampon, whether it's from penetrative sex or things like that. Fran was in her mid-twenties when she began seeing a sexologist. Laura was a similar age when she got her diagnosis for vaginismus. Sex education tells us about wet dreams, periods and babies. The rest we have to figure out on our own. There is confusion and shame surrounding women's pleasure, so we don't speak up about it. And that's when the belief that our bodies are broken starts to grow. These all contribute to the pleasure gap, or the orgasm gap, giving opportunities for us to be exploited by anyone claiming to fix the problem. So there's this character in Liz's documentary, Orgasm Inc., a real person called Charletta. Sorry if you've seen the documentary before, I'm going to get Liz to explain the scenario. I was pretty blown away by this part. Yeah, so Charlotta was having a lot of trouble having orgasms. She was really trying to understand what was going on with her body. 
Uh, and then she saw in her town in North Carolina that a doctor was offering these patients who would come in, who would be part of his clinical trial, the ability to have an orgasmatron inserted into their spine. And the idea was that this would trigger some magic button in your back that would give you an orgasm with a little electric current. And she decided to enroll in it. And when she came out, she's wheeled out in this wheelchair and, you know, he presses this button and she's like, oh, you know, and we're like, oh, maybe it works. Maybe this is going to be it. You know, women will be able to walk around with like a little mouse and they can like give themselves an orgasm as they wait in line at the grocery store. You know, this is going to be the great moment. Although I don't know how many women will want that put in their spine. But anyways, that was sort of his idea. He thought he was going to make a fortune off of this. So she went home and was testing it and then came back and I filmed her going back to the doctor and basically all it ended up doing was making her leg twitch out of control and kick out, which she said would only be good if she, you know, wanted to kick someone in the behind, but that was about it. So what was so shocking to me though was over the course of getting to know her and interview her, it became clear that she didn't really know about the full extent of different types of orgasms. You know, clitoral orgasm, vaginal orgasm, and that most women need direct clitoral stimulation in order to have an orgasm. That little fact is so important and it's kept out of most sex education because we don't educate about pleasure. Sex education is not taught to embrace what gives us pleasure, which is a huge problem. And one of the reasons that I think the drug industry in some ways was thinking that they would have a big market. In the end, Charlotte realized that there was nothing wrong with her body. It wasn't broken. In fact, it was perfectly normal. As much as the medical and pharmaceutical industry try to find the ultimate cure for so-called sexual dysfunction, there's a reason why we're not seeing too many claimed cures out there. Because they simply don't work. I do think that it hasn't been as successful as the pharmaceutical industry had hoped. And that they had been really gearing up for this being a huge market for them. Partly because when you invent a disorder or you exaggerate the extent of a disorder, it doesn't mean that you're going to have the market there. The efficacy has been very low in these products that they've been developing because you can't necessarily cure something if it doesn't exist. But then what was so different about the erectile dysfunction treatment for men and the success of Viagra? Well, I don't think that it's so healthy for men that they've been reduced to this idea of a pill is going to solve their sexual problems. Certainly, there's many complicated reasons that men also have sexual issues. There's all sorts of reasons that people may not be desiring sex or having the sexual experience they want. And these sort of narrow definitions don't take into account all the lifestyle reasons that People may not be sexually satisfied. Communication with your partner, your knowledge of what gives you pleasure. I mean, there's so many different things that actually lead to a satisfying sexual experience or not. Treatments like pills and things, they only address the physical aspects. So they only really change blood flow, but they don't address 
the psychological or emotional factors that, that do often get in the way. Both Laura and Fran are still on a path of discovery and healing. But that's exactly what is involved. Changes often happen slowly here and require revisitation throughout your lifetime. I never want to downplay that anymore because for so long I had to make myself feel small just so that these people wouldn't feel uncomfortable hearing my story. If I don't have to be in pain when having sex, if I can actually enjoy it again, if I can feel free, then I will do everything in my power to do that because I I don't want to feel like this forever. After making so many discoveries about herself and beginning to work through her trauma, I asked Laura what's changed for her. I wouldn't say I am 100% there. I think there's still a lot of healing in terms of coming to terms with the sexual abuse and how that has really, you know, impacted my life. And I know that it's not something that consumes me anymore, but I'm still trying to work out how moving forward that will look like. And I think being able to work through this vaginismus and also coming to terms with it and talking more openly about it, I'm stepping there closer, but I'm still on the climb up the mountain. And I asked Fran what's changed for her. I've started to understand how to talk about sex and how to try things and do different things and experiment. I've learned that that's actually a really fun way to experience pleasure. I'm dating someone who's living in Sydney and I'd never done this before, but like I was reading the sex story to him while he was masturbating and it just became like this really fun, cool thing that I was like, fuck yeah, I've never done this before, but I just gave it a go and it was and it was sick. So I think pleasure for me is actually turned into just experimenting and giving things a go that you probably would think that you would have never done before. That's what's really exciting to me. But I think it comes back to that expectation, you know, of how women are supposed to experience sex. And there's so many ways that women can experience an orgasm, even during sex, use a vibrator or clitoral stimulation. But if people don't know that, then it can be a problem. Charletta was convinced that surgery was her only answer to reaching an orgasm. This was a very different time, over a decade ago, sometime prior to 2009, when Orgasm Inc. was released. Since then, a lot more research has been done, and we have a much better understanding of female pleasure and female anatomy. However, there's still vast amounts of research to be conducted to give us a more full understanding. I was happy to hear from Cass that she's noticing more interest from her clients in toys and pleasure products that might not have been something they had tried before. People do struggle in figuring out what they want and that's sometimes what people come to sessions for. For generations we were seen as mainly like we have sex and we reproduce and that's all that our vaginas are used for. Women should be able to experience pleasure, you know, without having to actually physically have a penis inside of us. During the filming of Orgasm Inc., Liz played an active part in preventing the approval of placebo and potentially dangerous drugs that were passing through the hands of the pharmaceutical regulator, the Food and Drug Administration, in the United States. If you develop a drug in the United States... The FDA wants a disease for you to be developing it for. If they had just been developing a cream to give women pleasure, 
that would have been a whole different sort of framework. They wouldn't have been able to charge as much. They probably wouldn't have been able to get insurance to cover it. And so they were looking there. The drug industry was really looking for another kind of drug they could get women on that they take every day. I mean, I just want to make sure that something harmful doesn't get approved. There's excellent footage in Orgasm Inc. of Liz attending these FDA hearings with PhD researcher Leonor Tifa and her grassroots group for challenging the medicalization of sex called the New View Campaign. And I love this idea from the New View, which reads, Sexuality is more like dancing than digestion, more about body experiences and social contexts than universal biological functions. It really sums up the view that sexuality can't be simplified and is the result of a multitude of different factors. So what's the future for female Viagra and the pharmaceutical industry? Putting us on all these drugs has not necessarily made us healthier. That's for sure. This idea of of medicalizing everyday life does not actually make us live longer. Do you have direct-to-consumer advertising in Australia? When I made my film, you did it, but do you have it now? Australia bans all direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription-only medication. But pharmaceutical companies have, on occasion, found ways to evade legislation by exploiting loopholes. They use awareness campaigns to indirectly promote their products. They don't have to name a drug, but instead talk about a disease and encourage viewers to consult their doctors. And that is part of the reason so many people in the United States take so many pharmaceuticals, because they watch those ads and they request their doctors to give them these drugs. And if a patient doesn't get a drug, they often feel like they haven't been served well. What's going to happen in the future? Will there be a pill that unlocks earth-shattering orgasms for all women? Will women even want such a pill? What will it mean to have our pleasure governed by corporations and not ourselves? And what about if direct-to-consumer advertising becomes legal in Australia? I mean, we do want informed consumers, but we don't want consumers informed by the companies of the product that they're going to be asking for. I don't think that these sorts of quick fixes are really the answer for the most part. To me, just it really, I think it comes down to education and access, right, to these sorts of things as well. There is no single definition of sexual satisfaction or what is normal when it comes to sex. Sex is highly interpersonal and changes over time. Sexual satisfaction can result from a range of different social pressures, standards and expectations that we've covered in this episode. But pleasure is a birthright, and it shouldn't be something that you feel you have to fight for. And if you think that you need to get seen, go see your doctor, go see a gynaecologist, and just take a support person with you, because you deserve every ounce of healing, both mentally and physically, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. And there are techniques and tools out there for you that you can learn to allow yourself to have much better experiences and relationships and intimacy and a much better sexual understanding of yourself. The first thing that was approved for female sexual dysfunction was an overpriced, sucky device that you put on the clitoris that sort of sucked and jiggled it 
just like a vibrator, but they wanted like $400 for it and you need a prescription from your doctor to get it. That, by far, showed the most efficacy and had zero side effects. And so in Orgasm Inc, I went to Good Vibration Sex Store in San Francisco and Carol Queen sort of looked at it and was like, wait a minute, we have something here for much less money and you don't have to feel like you have a medical condition and there's something wrong with you. A big thank you for listening to The Philosophy of Sex and a big thank you to all of our guests. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me. There's also lots more info and links to further reading in the show notes. I'm Caroline Morrow-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcher, my co-producer and audio editor, who also wrote the music. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please leave us a review and subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.